The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Steady Investor with Mark Vickery and Mitch Zacks. In our program today, we'll help you get started or continue to build your nest egg with some of the best practices for retirement planning. It's time to start right now. Here are your hosts, Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery. Welcome, welcome, listeners of VoiceAmerica.com's business channel. You're listening to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zacks Investment Management. I'm your co-host, Mark Vickery. I'm joined today by the other co-host of The Steady Investor, Mitch Zacks, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zacks Investment Management. Good morning, Mitch. Good morning, Mark. How are you doing this I'm morning? doing just fine. It seems like a very festive day here in It Chicago. is a festive day. It's getting cold in Chicago, it's though, because we're, we're, it's December 1st. And uh, it's warm for Chicago for December, yeah, it's, uh, but relative to the, the southwest or the southern part of the country, uh, it, Chicago gets very cold in the winter. But it looks nice downtown here. It does look nice. The lights on. The, and the festivities in the building, yeah, that's festivities right. on uh, Michigan Avenue, so it looks very nice. It's very good. It's very good. Okay, so we've got a lot to talk about here. Um, okay. We're, you know, we're in the middle. This is the first week of, uh, or the beginning of December, and we're talking about uh, jobs uh, gains in okay. November. We saw yesterday the private sector jobs gains in ADP was uh, much higher than expected. It was 216,000 jobs right. uh, produced in the month of November. Um, that's way above the 170, 180,000 that were anticipated. And then, uh, well, today we have jobless claims number that wasn't, you know, it was, uh, the claims were up 17,000. But um, tomorrow's big BLS non-farm labor report, that's the big one. Uh, John Blank, who's the chief strategist yes. for Zacks, he had predicted, this is before the big yes. uh, ADP right. uh, run-up, uh, 230K for uh for tomorrow's BLS number, right. in any case, it looks to be shaking, shaping up to be a decent labor yeah, market. No, it's if, if the labor market continues to improve like this, you're going to start to see wage inflation. Right. So wages are going to start to go up. As wages start to rise, you're going to start to see price inflation. And as you start seeing price inflation, interest rates are going to rise. So the sell-off that we're seeing in the bond market. Right. Some of it is due to this expectation that they're going to cut taxes, they're going to increase government spending, the combination is going to cause inflation to accelerate. And some of it is also due just to the recovery of the labor market and the expectation that this low inflation environment is coming to a potential end. Sure. I mean, I think it's almost baked into the cake that, it's uh, almost, right. that so, December so it's, is going to be an interest rate. It was the worst year price. for treasuries, uh, owning treasury securities this month uh, since 2009. Okay. And so what's happening is people are transitioning out of treasuries and into equities. So if we look in the bond land, uh, what we find, you know, what Manish was talking about a couple uh, sessions ago uh, was essentially that a lower personal income tax rate means that the benefit of owning a municipal bond is lower. So municipal bonds have been selling off slightly. They've been becoming cheaper, but corporate bonds okay, are, are still being priced above treasuries at a relatively expensive rate. So there was a corporate bond, uh, you know, that came, that, that was offered. It was offered at, you know, 110 basis points or 1.1%. Mm -hmm. It's a five-year bond. 
1.1% above the five-year uh, treasury rate. And it actually got priced at uh, 0.8% uh, or 80 basis points above the five-year treasury rate due to increased demand. So there's such an increased demand that there's a demand for lower credit securities relative to treasuries. And that you would expect in a rising interest rate environment for that differential to increase. And it's, out, it's actually not. And so that's telling us that there's, there's, there, there, there continues to be demand uh, for yield in the marketplace. There continues to be movement into the fixed income. But uh, what most strategists are seeing is that if you do start seeing interest rates rise, and you do see corporate tax rates fall dramatically, you're going to uh, start to see the net result of that is you're going to start to see positive earnings growth uh, for the S&P 500. And the ability of the companies to issue debt and buy back stock will still be there. And so this would be bullish for the market over the next uh, 12 months. For the equity market. For the equity market, because you're going to have movement. You have assets flowing out of fixed income. You're going to have, for most companies that have uh, an effective tax rate above 30%, uh, the effective tax rate is going to go, go down. When we talk about price-to-earnings ratios, it's the earnings after tax, okay. okay? So if the tax rate falls, the after-tax earnings rise, right, true. the P-E multiple comes down, uh, and so you're going to see added earnings growth occurring in the component stocks of the S&P 500. And that also helps explain why the Russell has, the, the small cap Russell 2000 has been so strong. The effect of a tax cut is more pronounced for corporations that are currently paying high tax rates currently, right. which tend to be smaller and mid-sized companies. Multinational companies are have reduced. I mean, it, 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 it's it's perverse, but larger cap companies that Google, Facebook, that have divisions all over the world, right, have lower effective tax rates than an industrial a product company uh, in the Midwest. And the reason is they're able to reduce their tax rate by essential transfer pricing and engaging in activity that's offshore. So they transfer the profits to those uh, areas that have very, very low taxes. Okay. So you're in the U.S. and you're also in uh, Ireland or some other country, and Ireland has a lower tax rate. I don't know if this is correct. Ireland has a lower tax rate than the U.S. So you say Facebook says all our profits come from Ireland. And here's how we're going to address this. We're going to have inter-geographic uh, transfer pricing where the Irish subsidiary is going to build this subsidiary, this amount of money, and their effective tax rate is lower than the auto parts, auto parts manufacturer in Detroit that has everyone in the U.S. Right. So the lower corporate tax rate is going to benefit those companies with high effective tax rates, and those companies with high effective tax rates tend to be more smaller cap companies and tend to be less so these multinationals. Okay. Well, what about now we have a new administration yes. coming in at, after the first of the yes. year uh, who has uh, promised to bring back a lot of these jobs that are uh, currently overseas back to America. How does this affect the scenario you're talking okay, about? Okay. So the issue here is that trade – so what he's saying is he's going to stop Let's let's take a look at that that company in uh, in Indiana. I forget what was the name of it. Oh, the, it was a carrier. A carrier, and they were moving uh, jobs overseas. And it's better not to talk about specific companies. So we don't get people worked up. Right. But the, the 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 concept basically is that by giving by forcing people, however you do it, through taxes, uh, through benefits, through a stick, through a carrot, to keep the jobs in the U.S., what you're going to effectively do 
is you're going to increase the cost of goods that people buy. So let's say there's a, uh, I've done, I've used this example before, but let me use it again. Say there's a tire manufacturer and everyone in the country has to buy tires. Mm -hmm. And there are 20 plants in Detroit that make the tires. And these plants are told, we are, if you move your jobs overseas, we will not pay, we will not buy tires from any, anyone from overseas. And we're also going to stop buying tires from China. Okay. So you, everyone who uses tires in the United States has to buy tires in the United States. Okay. And they have, and the tires that are made in the United States has to be made with labor in the United States. What happens is the people maintain their jobs, but the price of the tires increases. So everyone in the country pays more for tires for their car, but the people who produce the tires have their jobs. Right. So the pain is, uh, it, it, the, the effect is decentralized, uh, but the benefit is centralized. Okay. So those people say, that's great. I love the new administration. I have my job in the tire factory and everyone else has a very, very small tax that they don't really see that is higher, higher tire prices. Right. And that means that there's, so, so the net effect of this can be viewed as increasing taxes on people who need to buy tires. And so if you do this with various goods, the tax burden starts to shift away from wealthy people, because it's not income tax, to people who need to buy tires. Who needs to buy tires for the car? Pretty much everybody. Pretty much everyone. So they have to pay more for their tires and the people who don't lose their jobs. But the net effect over long periods of time is that the tire factory in Michigan start, starts to become non-competitive with the global tire industry. Right. Because they're shielded from the competition. So they only produce tires. They can sell the tires in the U.S. Now maybe they're not going to invest. You know, already their tires are more expensive than the tires in China. Right. Now a new technology comes along with the rubber manufacturing. Maybe they won't invest in it. So it creates, a, it creates two problems. It creates a higher, quote, taxes for everyone because higher prices of goods. These taxes fall more on sort of middle-income people. It's not and a progressive tax. It's not a progressive tax. And then the second thing that happens is that the companies that are protected uh, start to become non-competitive. Right. And so what has to happen is you have to let the economy function, and you have to let the people have to be told, you, you, we can't produce tires as uh, cheaply as they can in China. Let's find something we can do better than they can in China, sell them those goods, and buy the tires back. And right. that's... And, and, and the concern is that over the long period of time, the trade tariffs and the protectionism could be very, very negative for the economy. On the short, in the short term, everyone gets very excited. But on the long term, in terms of long term economic growth, it, it could be an issue. And the same thing with the, uh, with, with, with the lower corporate tax rate. When the tax rates on corporations go lower, there's going to be a one time huge in, impact on the market. But then what happens if they have to go up again or what's going to keep pushing it forward? So what I'm seeing is that the, the fundamental revenue growth of these corporations is not that dramatic in aggregate. And earnings per share are being increased by things such as lower tax rates, uh, such as issuing debt and buying back stock. And what you really need to see is you need to see global and U.S. GDP growth really accelerate. Uh, for, for for the market really long term uh, to reach its long term uh, you know historical rates of return. Right. I mean, even a corporate tax cut would be a one time event, correct? Right. It's a one time event, but it has a very definitive impact on corporate earnings 
and it definitely impacts small cap corporate earnings more than uh, large cap corporate earnings. But a year out from that tax cut, then you're basically having you have to you have to have growth, right? right? So so the question is, will the growth materialize if the taxes are lower? And these it could be a one time impact uh, in the thing. I mean, it's very interesting if you look at what drives uh, New York real estate, and you try and say predict what's going to happen to Manhattan prices of apartments in Manhattan. Yeah. And you start to regress variables and try and figure out how can I predict what's going to happen with uh, the real estate in Manhattan. What you find is there's a very, very high correlation uh, between Manhattan real estate and uh, the equity markets. So when the stock market goes up, the price of a three-bedroom, pre-war, post-war condo on 54th Street in Manhattan also goes up. Okay. When the market price falls dramatically, the price goes down. And this makes sense because finance is driving real estate prices in Manhattan. So if you think of this in just a very, very long-term, cynical way, and you say, what, what, what does the administration want? They probably want Manhattan real estate prices to continue to rise. Why would that be? Uh, okay, and if you want that to happen, how is that accomplished? It's accomplished by getting the market to go higher. So the net result is probably going to be that you're going to see the market, you're going to see policies designed to cause the market to go higher because it's going to cause, in different areas of the country, it makes a difference. If you're in North Dakota or something like that, the price of real estate is driven by the uh, the, the oil shale industry. Right, that's right. Right? So you would, you, if someone was uh, became president who whose entire wealth was based on real estate in North Dakota, you'd expect, well, probably there's going to be some benefit to, to shale. So you, you're going to see, likely, with the new administration, the market uh, continue to go up. And the issue is whether these the growth is one term or sustainable but for the next three to four years you would say listen the market is definitely going to be going a little bit higher than what people were expecting prior to the election okay i want to go back just a tad and unpack a little bit of what what you i think you were referencing yes which is if we're going to make products here in america now under the new administration that limits the it limits the competitiveness of those companies that are doing it, although it guarantees a certain amount of, of profits for these companies because they're selling to Americans. Right. So the short term, it can be very positive, but in the long term, it, there's, there's no way that it is positive. So by limiting trade in the short term, it, it, it saves jobs, but in the long term, it doesn't help the growth of the economy. And so like, if you, if you talk to economists, and we're talking to John Blank about this, free trade is one of the few things that there's agreement between the salt wet, saltwater economists and the freshwater economists uh, that you're going to see uh, that, that it's a good idea to have. If you have more free trade, it makes both parties better off. The issue is that if you start to restrict the trade, uh, it, it could affect long-term competitiveness and long-term uh, GDP growth. It's very hard to explain this to people. If you are in a company or you're working at a company that's making horse and buggies, and then also an automobiles come around. Right. And the automobiles right now are kind of a substitute and maybe you, the horse and buggy might be cheaper right now to own because the horse prices are lower and uh, the feed prices are lower. But over the long term, the horse and buggy isn't gonna, it's not gonna persist. It's an outmoded. It's an outmoded thing. It has to disappear. If you then pr- create regulations, everyone who buys a uh, automobile has to buy a horse and buggy. We are going to tax automobiles at a much higher rate than horse and buggies. So people will want to buy horses, uh, buggies, uh, whatever they are, you know, carriages and horses as opposed to buying automobiles. Well, in the immediate term, everyone's very excited. 
But in the long term, what happens is there's no automobile industry that develops. Right. Right. And so all that growth in that industry goes someplace else. And so the concern here is that if you become too protectionist, people are very excited in the short term. But in the long term, what you start to have is a non-free market economy. And when that occurs, capital is not allocated correctly. And you start you start to have what happened what happened in these these countries that were centrally commanded economies. You have you have whole entire industries developing that are non-competitive that should not exist, but they exist because of regulatory changes. And that the government so, says the so. government says uh, this this Eastern European government said that we are not going to buy Nike shoes. We are going to have our own shoe factory so our people can be employed and create their own shoes. Well, they, what happens is fast forward thirty years. They're wasting all this effort. They should be buying Nike shoes and figuring something they can sell to the U.S. that they can do better than what they can in the U.S. But so instead, what happens is the problem with trade is that the the benefits of trade are very, very distributed and they help people who own companies a lot. Okay. Right. The the, the drawbacks of trade are the people who lose their jobs due to uh, free trade. And right. so the, it's very, very specialized. These, these people are losing their jobs. They're getting very, very worked up. And the benefits are very, very delocalized. Everyone gets lower tire prices. So if you start to reverse this trend and you really reverse it, it's not positive for the economy over long periods of time. And it's not positive for the companies over long periods of time. And this, by the way, we're not seeing just in the United States. Uh, we, and the issue is you're seeing this, this movement against globalization because globalization's winners are largely distributed and the real winners of globalizations are these people, are, are, are owners of companies uh, because they get lower cost of goods, they get more markets to sell to, et cetera. Uh, and the, the losers are the people who lose their jobs. Right. And so it, 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 it tends to increase uh, income inequality, uh, but I don't think the answer is to increase tariffs. And so, so the, the concern is that Right now, in terms of the market and the administration, the market is looking at all the positives and not looking at the negatives. And because I think the market is taking a step back and saying it, the net effect of this administration is going to want to cause the stock market to go up. Because if the stock market goes up, real estate prices in New York go up, and, and that's a, that, that might be an overall demand. It might not be. It's a very cynical way of looking at it. It may not be accurate. Uh, but, uh, you know, what is basically going on is that right now the market is price is beginning to price in the benefits from the lower corporate tax rate and the benefits uh, from the increased infrastructure spending. Right. With none of the drawbacks of uh, effectively tariffs or trade wars or anything of that sort. It's very interesting. And it's possible that there won't be any tariffs or trade wars and things of that sort. That the, the you know, but, but it's interesting to see what will happen. The net result is the market is. You definitely should be a little bit more bullish on the market uh, than what you were a, a couple of uh, weeks ago prior prior to the election. Okay. All right. We're going to take a short break, Mitch, and uh, we'll come back and have more of this. I think it's a fascinating discussion. So okay. I hope you stick with us on The Steady Investor on voiceamerica.com's business channel. We'll be right back. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. 
Zax focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 1-800-918-3114 or to learn more, go to info at zax.com. Again, that number is 1-800-918-3114 or go to info at zax.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. You are listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to See Gaitan at Zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. I'm Mark Vickery, joined by Mitch Zaks, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zax Investment Management. Um, I wanted to say, well, before we get back into a discussion, Mitch, I just wanted to say, yeah, please, we'd love to hear from you. If you're listening to the show uh, and you'd like to talk to Mitch about, uh, about your investments or about anything that you see uh, on the horizon as far as the economy or as far as uh, what to do about that. Also, if you'd like to get John Blank's uh, strategy or economic outlook, it's uh, we can give that to people who call in. What is the uh, number again, yeah, Mark? Oh, so I'm going to give out the number. Okay, that's that's 1-800-918-3114. And that's for the free stock market outlook. I know for a fact that John Blank does this tomorrow. He's okay. going to come out with it as soon as the jobs number Got it. comes out. He's going to well, we're going to try to have it published then you probably by Monday it'll be out and then we can send it right to you. Just call that number 800-918-3114 and for more information about how to best invest your assets for retirement, you can call Zach's Investment Management right here in Chicago. Again that number 800-918-3114. Uh, you can discuss at length your risk levels and investment strategies that are best suited for you and your family. And for more information, you can email us at info at zimwealth.com or visit our website online. Obviously, it's online. It's zimwealth.com, Z-I-M for Zach's Investment Management, wealth.com. Okay, Mitch, let's okay. pick it right up where we left okay, off. Okay, got it. And we were talking about lower tax rates coming in, the, the, the President-elect yes. Trump's administration. Yes. I was curious. What companies, what, what's the type of company, without getting too specific, I, I think, uh, or maybe you can, if okay. you, uh, that might get hit by a lower okay. tax rate. So what we're talking about is a lower corporate tax rate. Right, and what's right. very important for people to realize that when they talk about earnings per share or when they talk about the earnings attributable to share classes, that is after taxes. So taxes, it's not a pre-tax earnings, it's an after-tax earnings. Right. So companies with tax rates, effective tax rates, which is what they're effectively paying, there are two sets of books all companies keep. They're the financial set, and then there's the set for the uh, for taxes. And the amount that they, they're paying in taxes is based on the set of books that are not shown to public investors that they uh, that they give to the uh, tax uh, the, the ta taxation uh, that shows what taxes they're actually paying. Okay. Now, if the effective tax rate is higher than the rate they're lowering it to, they're going to benefit. But there are certain companies out there that have what are, are called net operating losses. 
Okay. Right. There's not, and what they do is these are companies that are usually startup companies. They've lost a tremendous amount of money. Uh, the, the company has these losses that they're carrying forward, and that's a tax shield. But the value of that tax shield is reduced if the uh. tax rates fall. So if you talk about some startup company, they tried to do this product, they wasted $90 million or $100 million, they have $100 million in net operating losses. Someone would look at that and say, well, if I can take that company and I can acquire a company with profits, okay, right. I can use these net operating losses that I'm carrying forward to offset the you know, $100 million in operating gains that are occurring. Right. And the net result is if I push these two companies together, uh, what will happen is the uh, combined entity will not have a tax bill to pay. It's very similar to what Donald Trump did. I was just going to say, isn't yeah, that how it's, we it's made? the exact same thing. So if the corporate tax rate goes lower, the benefit of net operating losses also goes lower. So corporations, it's very weird. You've seen a couple companies uh, where they have a large amount of losses that they can carry forward, and the value of those companies have actually gone down because the ability of that company to use it as a tax shield is going to go down. So that's going to, these companies are going to be micro cap companies. So I don't want to get into their names, right, right. Uh, but they're going to be smaller cap companies where they have large, uh, you know, large amounts of losses. And people are looking at that and saying, well, this company tried to develop XYZ drug. They tried to develop XYZ product and they have $150 million in, uh, after tax in, in losses, right? Well, that that's worth $45 million in a tax shield to someone. So if they can take that company and uh, they, they combine that company with a company that's generating uh, gains, uh, they have this tax benefit, a tax asset of $45 million. You're writing all that off. Right. That tax asset has decreased in value if the corporate income tax falls. So the winners are these small cap and mid cap companies whose effective tax rates are higher than the corporate income tax rate. And the losers are these companies with net operating losses that are shell companies that were valued based upon the tax shield that combining that company with someone else would effectively accomplish. Is it really that, so President Trump, who made net operating losses part of his balance sheet, we assume. Well, no, he was a smart guy. I mean, he, he, he was able to reduce his taxes over long periods of time. But now he's going to make that disappear? or I, I don't know if it's going to make it disappear, but it's going to make the value of net operating losses lower. So these, these, these shell companies, and they're not great companies to own. You would never look at it. And the, the reason people buy it is for this special situations uh, instance where the value of the tax shield uh, is high enough because, of, because they have these losses. Right. And they look at those companies and they say, okay, those companies, the, the value of that tax shield has to decrease. Okay. So, so, and it's, it's the same exact thing you're seeing a little bit to less of an extent in the municipal bond world. People pay up for municipal bonds above corporate uh, or treasuries mm -hmm. uh, because they get a uh, favorable tax treatment. The income that they get from the municipal bond is not taxed at the federal or state level usually. Sometimes right. the state depends on what the municipal bond is. So if those tax rates fall, the benefit of that decreases. Right. The price of these muni bonds are coming down and their yields are going up. So muni bonds are selling off uh, as much, if not more, than treasuries. And it's the same thing. So you're going to see these changes in taxes that occur over time. And for the most part, the middle market, uh, mid-cap companies and small-cap companies and small-large-cap companies with high effective tax rates are going to benefit. Right. But there are companies with, uh, you know, you can look at some of these very, very large high-tech companies, and you look at their effective tax rate, and it's like close to zero. 
and uh, they're not going to benefit from the lower corporate income tax rate. So again, it, it, over long periods of time, the change in the corporate income tax rate should help these companies. It will hurt these small stub companies that are uh, trading based on their net operating losses. Now, we've seen tremendous growth uh, since the election in small cap stocks. A lot of that because uh, these are mostly U.S.-based uh, companies that deal, right? Not exposed to tariffs, right. lower corporate income taxes, uh, beneficiary from increased uh, government spending. The uh, middle market banks benefit more from reduction in financial regulation than large cap banks. But what you just described is a kind of a leaner, meaner uh, uh, scenario yeah. for, the, for these companies to exist in. So is it just make profits or else? Or how, how, do, how do you foresee this um, kind of coming about? Well, the, the, the small regional banks are the, a huge beneficiary of this. So the, I think one of the ideas is you're going to free up these small, mid-sized banks. And they're not small banks. I mean, they're, they're only small relative to these uh, BMFs That's like right. uh, JP Morgan. Right. Uh, but these are uh, regional banks that people would know in their uh, couple of states and uh, with several billion dollars in assets. And uh, they're, they're going to be freed up, hopefully, to do more lending. And right. so the concept is if they lend, you're going to see uh, the, the company that's not public that uses the bank loan to grow, to buy more capital, be able to expand a little bit better. Okay. And so if that occurs, that could be hugely beneficial uh, for these small and mid-sized banks and for the economy as a whole. Plus, when interest rates rise, which we are assuming is yes. going to happen in a couple of weeks, um, that's also good because then they can charge higher rates. It's, it's it's not the level of interest rates. It's the differential. It's the slope of the interest. Okay. It's the differential between what they have to pay on their uh, the balances and what they can charge on mortgage rates. It's a margin. If mortgage. Okay, so look at this way. Uh, the the income rates. Uh, what you would get if you put a CD in the bank was close to zero, and the mortgage rate was what about four percent or right. something like okay. that, right? Now let's fast forward and let's say what you get on what you put in the bank is half a percent and the mortgage rate is now five percent okay okay they're making the spread so where that spread was uh four percent that spread is now four and a half percent and that's now annualized every year right okay so okay. they're making an extra so they were making four percent and this small little change the the, the short-term rate came up to 50 basis points right uh and it, it, i don't think it's up that high and the mortgage rate's gone up to five percent let's just say uh now they're making four and a half that extra half a percent is a 10%, 15% uh, increase in their earnings right. that they were occurring. So banks want a steepening yield curve with mild inflation, but they don't want very, very high inflation. Okay. If they get very high inflation, it, it hurts banks. And the reason is the bank will, uh, again, it's the differential between the short-term rate and the long-term rate. Right. So what, what is the bank doing? It's giving the loan out at four and a half, five percent and it's paying these deposits, and it's paying them at a half a percent. The next year, it pays it whatever it is. If you have inflation, yeah. they've locked in their four and a half percent that they're earning, and every month, now it's half a percent, now it's 75 basis points, now it's 100 basis points, now it's 100, I now see. it's huge inflation. Now, three years out, they're paying 3% on their deposits. Right. It's now the margin on that loan has decreased dramatically. Right. So the bank wants some degree of inflation, because small inflation will cause the yield curve to be upward sloping. But they don't want a, a very high degree of inflation because high degrees of inflation will eliminate the profits that they make from their lending, essentially. Right. Now, some of their lending is based upon uh, a floating rates. It's saying, what is the 10-year rate? And they're going to charge above that. But again, what they're charging above that is locked in. 
Okay, we will give you a loan for 120 basis points above the, the treasury. And then if you start seeing interest rates go up, the interest rates go up and, and people want more because they're expecting more inflation. So the bank right now, if you see a low inflationary environment with an upward sloping yield curve, the benefit are these mid-sized banks. Their profits go up dramatically. Yeah. And you've seen uh, in terms of economic data that's useful to look at. I'm not sure you can trade off the jobs data that much besides the initial response. But looking at the total corporate uh, earnings of banks that's uh, disclosed to the, to the banking administrator uh, is, is more beneficial. And, and we're seeing there an increase in bank profits. Okay. So if the bank profits, it's the same thing as why in 2009 these banks were too big to fail. Because the bank... The banking sector is what provides the cash or the money for the rest of the sectors to grow. And so if you have a strong banking sector that is lending out money, mm -hmm. they're lending out money to people to start companies, uh, to grow their companies. That's very beneficial for everyone uh, going on. Okay. These uh, uh, small, medium-sized banks are often referred to as regional banks. Yes. Are there any particular regions that come to mind that might be more? I would look at Midwest-based regional banking. So if, if, if the administration is trying to focus on keeping jobs in the Midwest and sort of the Rust Belt, the banking companies in those regions would tend to do relatively well. And why is that? Uh, because you're going to see you're going to see policies enacted that help those regions essentially. More jobs. More jobs. I, I would not thing. bank. I would not bet on a California bank. I mean, it's just it, you know I wouldn't say that. Yes, there's going to be uh, trends that benefit them, but where the real pain is being hurt is at is is in these regional banks in the Midwest and things like that. And the real pain is not even from the differential in the uh, short-term and long-term rates. It really is in the regulations. So okay. for uh, you know for J.P. Morgan to satisfy the regulations, it, it's it, you know yes they can do this. Yes, it costs the money, but it's not a huge issue. The same amount of uh, money has to be spent by the small regional bank. Right. And so as a result, as a percentage of their total asset base. It's a much higher tax on them, effectively. Sure. And so, if you reduce that, it's going to help these small regional banks uh, become profitable. And you mentioned and the they are profitable, but it's going to help them grow their profits over time. Okay. And you're saying Rust Belt, and we know that they had problems uh, with uh, with unemployment and uh, all this other kind of stuff. Probably led to partly the outcome of the election. Yes. Um, so extent. we're coming off very low lows then too. Yes. So you're going to see even more dramatic growth. You're thinking. Well, the, the issue is that the market is 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 shooting first and asking questions later. Yeah. So it's already responding to these issues. That's why uh, XLF, which is a, uh, a banking ETF, had one of its best days, best months ever, right. uh, up double digits. And, and the reason is uh, because the market is reacting to what it expects to have happen. And the real question for an investor is not, are these expectations correct? Is will what is going to happen materialize greater or worse than existing expectations. Right. So will the growth, will the tax cut, will the increase in uh, government spending, uh, will the upward sloping yield curve, will the reduction in regulations be higher or lower than what the market is pricing in? Yeah. And it feels to me the market is highly... It, it, the other thing I don't like, so so one thing it feels like the market is might be a little bit overreacting, and then what I also don't like is every strategist out there is now raising their long-term price target for the end of 2017, uh -huh. and there aren't many signals. I mean, I've I've done a, a little bit of research on trying to find you know, a couple uh, a couple years of research on trying to find signals to predict the market direction, 
And uh, all the signals have very, very low statistical significance. They're not that uh, useful. Okay. But the ones that uh, do seem to have some ability, one of them is look where the majority of Wall Street strategists are making their change in terms of their consent, their forecast, and the uh, it's a contrarian signal. So okay. when you have multiple Wall Street analysts reducing their price target, uh, the market has a slightly greater chance to rise. And when you have multiple analysts increasing their price target, the market actually has a better chance to fall. And so what happened in this case- Or miss expectations. Or miss expectations. So it's like, you're seeing the strategists become bullish. You're seeing the market become bullish. You're, you're, you're expecting earnings growth to occur from the tax change. You're expecting earnings growth uh, to occur from the increase in government spending. You're expecting earnings growth to occur from a upward sloping yield curve. You're expecting earnings growth to occur uh, from a uh, reduction in financial regulations. Yeah. And these expectations are being built into the market. This and so what happens is when expectations get built into the market, it's easier to miss those expectations. Right. When there are no expectations built into the market, when the strategists are all lowering their price target, uh, it's easier to surprise to the upside. And we were talking about this a couple months ago. Yeah. And we said, listen, everything is negative. The strategists are negative. The outlook is negative. The jobs number is negative. The GDP note growth number Back is negative. Back in the negative. summer when we started right, right. And we that. said, listen, when these expectations are all negative, it's easier to surprise to the upside. Now all the expectations are becoming positive. Yeah. People are getting excited about the market. They're saying, how do I invest? How do I invest in companies that are going to be benefited by the new administration? I now want to start putting my money to work. And right. that, and when retail investors or individual investors start saying that, it's not necessarily a great sign. So what my... my and that's because of the exuberance now. It, it's because exactly what we said. All these things that people are expecting are now, they're, they're not waiting for those expectations to be met. Right. It's like Facebook. They're expecting it to grow and continue to grow at this uh, double-digit rate. So they they're it, they're right. valuing it high now. And so the, the prices are responding to these expectations. Right. The expectations are getting built into the prices. And when the expectations get built into the price, it's usually easier to surprise to the downside. Now, we're coming off a period of time, like we said in the summer, where there were very dire, negative, pessimistic expectations. Right. So it's possible the market is underreacting to it, but it's also possible that if X, Y, and Z happens and the tax rate doesn't get cut as much as people are expecting and the government spending doesn't get cut as much, uh, doesn't get increased as much as people are expecting, you're going to see negative expectations. But my intuitive bet is that the administration is going to go all out to try and push the market higher because of the potential linkage between the market and uh, Manhattan real estate. Oh, and then it, it comes it, down to that. It doesn't come down to that, but it's just but like it's, you're, you're keeping that as uh, keeping. I think that. they're going to keep pushing. So it's like, but my, my, my general impression is that it generally, if you're sitting here and you're looking at the market go up and you're saying, well, my treasuries are off dramatically, it's time to sell the treasuries and put into the market. Try and hold the treasuries, try and hold your fixed income that you have, try and keep your equity and debt mix in such a way uh, that you're indifferent between the market rising 10% and the market falling 10%. Very good. And uh, if you can do that, you're going to be better off over time. So do not start trying to say, okay, you have a 70-80-20 mix between equity and debt. Now all of a sudden debt prices are falling. Should I go to 90-10? Try and keep the equity and debt mix constant over the next five to 10 years of your investing career. And if you can do that, eventually when the expectations uh, get ahead of prices 
and expectations are not met and prices fall, uh, you're going to be able to recover better. You're going to be able to just stay invested over a long period of time. We're listening to Mitch Zacks, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zacks Investment Management. This is The Steady Investor. We're going to take a short break and be back for our third segment. Please stay tuned. America Business Network. The Steady Investor Show is brought to you by Zach's Investment Management, a wealth management boutique formed over 23 years ago and manages several billions of dollars for thousands of customers. At Zach's, we believe acting in your best interest is our obligation. Zach's focuses on providing solutions and listening to our clients' needs. With trust in the financial industry at an all-time low, we find this focus to be a key differentiator for our firm. We're based in Chicago and have a team of advisor representatives located across the country to help you with your retirement planning. Whether you need help with financial planning or looking for a second opinion on your retirement plan, give us a call at 1-800-918-3114 or to learn more, go to info at zax.com. Again, that number is 1-800-918-3114 or go to info at zax.com. Fast performance is no guarantee of future results. Potential for loss exists in any investment. Material is for informational purposes only. It is not investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice. A recommendation to buy, sell, or hold a security. No advice is given about a strategy's suitability for a particular investor. listening to The Steady Investor. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to cgaitan at zax.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to The Steady Investor, sponsored by Zax Investment Management. This is Mark Vickery with Mitch Zaks, Portfolio Manager and Founding Principal at Zach's Investment Management. Uh, Mitch, I do want to continue our conversation, but I also want to go back and say, for more information about how to best invest your assets for retirement, call Zach's Investment Management right here in Chicago at 800-918-3114. You can discuss at length your risk levels and investment strategies that are best suited for you and your family. Uh, you can also get more information by emailing us at info at zimwealth.com or visit our website, which is also zimwealth.com. Uh, to get our free stock market outlook from John Blank, who's the Zach's chief strategist for Zach's Investment Management, um, again, call that number, 800-918-3114. The new edition is coming out uh, tomorrow, I believe, uh, and it's very, very informative, comprehensive. It really is what investors need to be uh, concerned with and, and thinking about. So, Mitch, let's go to the Mitch on the Markets uh, article, okay. which comes out every week uh, through Zach's Investment Management's website. Um, and I'm looking at one headline here, which I found particularly intriguing, and it says, post-election bond route, trouble yeah. brewing. Okay, so we have something else. Uh, to uh, maybe concern ourselves with uh, looking forward. Uh, U.S. Treasuries have sold off sharply 
uh, since the election. Obviously, it was for the reasons that we were talking about before. Mm -hmm. um, we're seeing the 10-year the Treasury went from 1.88% to 2.14 on November 18th, and the 30-year saw a similar spike uh, from 263 to 3.01 over the same period. Uh, now, with interest rates so low, these might seem like incremental upticks, but in reality, they re represent a large percentage increase over a short period of time. So what do you make of this? Of this? The issue is that if interest rates rise, bond prices are going to come under pressure. Okay. Uh, and you're going to continue to see interest rates continue to tick up. I don't <clears throat> think you're going to see, I, I am fairly certain the Federal Reserve is going to raise rates at the end of, uh, you know, in the December meeting, and you're, you're going to see them effectively, uh, you're going to see rates uh, effectively go up. And as rates uh, continue to rise, it's going to put downward pressure on fixed income instruments, and it's going to uh, it's going to accelerate this movement uh, into uh, equities. Okay. And so the issue is, do you participate in that movement by joining the crowd, the mass movement of assets? Mm. Do you sell your bonds and buy equities? And to that, what I would say is that you should have a mixture between equity and debt instruments, between equity and fixed income, mm -hmm. so that regardless of whether equities outperform fixed income or fixed income outperforms equities, you're pretty constant in that allocation. And the reason is that uh, equity prices and bond prices are negatively correlated. Right. If you want to make the highest return over a long period of time, trying to get as much into the equity market as possible and just staying there is the best way uh, to do it. Uh, but uh, uh, in order to do that and to bear the, to stay in the equity markets when the equity market's correct, and they absolutely will continue to correct and they will continue to sell off at certain periods of time, you need some in fixed income. Because generally speaking, if there uh, begins to be a feeling that there's an economic contraction occurring, yeah. and no one's talking about an economic contraction, not which now. makes you, Again, it's not priced in. Right. Uh, in the summer, it was all malaise, and there's a so it's not priced in. But if there is an economic retract, uh, contraction, you're going to see interest rates start to fall a little bit, and as interest rates fall, bond prices are going to go up. So the the bonds are really we tend to at the firm use our fixed income exposure as a means of reducing. Uh, the overall volatility of a client's portfolio so they can bear their weighting in equities over long periods of time. Right. So if you said, how do you generate the most amount of money for, for over the next 10 years? Okay. I would say put as much money into the U.S. equity market as possible. Uh, put a little bit into the developed uh, equity market. Avoid emerging markets and avoid fixed income. Right now. And keep, and yeah. keep, at any point in time. Okay. Okay. Unless interest rates are incredibly, incredibly high, but even then interest rates might fall. So you generally, equities will generally expected, the expected return for equities is higher than that for bonds. Right. And the compounding effect of that is dramatic, but you need to stay invested. You need to take the proceeds and reinvest it over time. However, I will tell you that over those 10 year period, there'll be a contraction There'll be a 10% 10, 10 correction. There'll be a time of pure panic in the marketplace. Right. All these things will occur. And at that point in time, if you panic with everyone else, if you correct when everyone else corrects, you will not make that rate of return. So you need some exposure to fixed income. So when the panic hits in the equity markets, when the correction hits in the equity markets, like I guarantee you it will, 
you don't get uh, shaken out of the market. Right. And so that is the key. It's a psychological issue. If you can ignore the psychology, 100% equity investment is a very reasonable allocation over long periods of time. You see that happen that people invested in 2007. And they invested in 2007 and they, they kept 100% uh, in equities. Market sells off in 2008. They don't panic. Yeah. They hold their equities. It is now past its uh, previous highs. That's right. Right? And over that period of time, so if you invested at the absolute top tick of the market, uh, which was probably in 2007, and you held it now uh, for nine years, and it's 2016, the market is now at the same point it was at. So you've made no money on the market, yeah. and you've made a 2%, 2.5% uh, return on the uh, dividend payments that you've made. Right. And so if you can invest in the market and not get shaken out and you can invest again, that will work over a period of time when it's the greatest financial crisis since the uh, Great Depression. Mm. We're going to have crises going forward. But if you estimate they're not going to be as bad as what happened in 2008, right. you're going to be OK. And even if they are as bad as in 2008, if you, it, don't, panic. If you don't panic, you do OK. Yeah. It's very hard, though, in March of 2009. Mm -hmm sitting there and seeing 40% of your net worth drop in your 100% equity exposure, not to panic. And that's why you need the fixed income in your portfolio. Right. So you need the fixed income in the portfolio, not because we think interest rates aren't going to rise, and not because we don't think fixed income is going to underperform. You need it so that when the market turns against you, you can stay invested. It stops up that volatility. It stops up the volatility. Now, a lot of this has to do with your personal timing in the market. If you invest in 2003 and you ride the market up to 2008 mm -hmm. and you're now double your, your, your initial investment, you may be able to handle a 20% pullback much easier than if you initially invest in 2008 and uh, you immediately start, uh, we go into the financial crisis. Right. And so, so the key thing is to realize it is a long-term game. You know how the game ends. The game ends with the U.S. equity market uh, heading higher as U.S. corporate earnings increase over time. Right. The entire system, the, the political system, the financial system, uh, the, the capitalist system is designed to cause equities to increase in price over time. Mm -hmm. You're betting on that system, and that bet on that system has been a very good bet over the last 100 years. It will be a good bet over the next 100 years. I right. guarantee you. So the issue for an investor is whether they can deal with the volatility. And when you see a sell-off very dramatic, just as the market went up dramatically, the market can go down dramatically. Right. And if you see that dramatic sell-off, that an individual not panic, not sell equities, but can stay invested. And for the individual to accomplish that, it's often important that they have some degree of fixed income exposure. Right. What's interesting is we've been doing this show for about a half a year now. Yeah. And um, it, what, what a difference from, from our outlook. Where everyone yeah. was saying, oh, we were in this long bull market. How much longer can it possibly run? It's, it's running now out of gas. Now everyone's rushing to get into the bull market. Well, so, right. Is it the same bull market? It's path, or it's, 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 it's path independent, which what that means is that your chance, it's like a fractal, your chance of the market going up or down in any year is about a 70% chance of it going up and a 30% chance of it going down. Okay. okay. So your chance of getting uh, two down years in a row is about a 10% chance. Chance of getting three down years in a row is about 3% chance. Okay. Okay. But after you've had two down years in a row, the chance of getting the next down year is still 30%. So it's an independent event. 
Okay. Where what happens next is not determined by what's happened historically. So, you know, you have an independent uh, realization of a return where the expected rate is six to nine percent and the standard deviation is 15 to 17 percent. Okay. The best course of action in that when you're presented with that, if that is what is really being uh, really occurring, is you invest in the market and you stay invested and you ignore the fluctuations. So even at these levels, even if you wanted to get started right now, we're already at You uh, want to do the highs. same thing you're doing now as you would uh, in the summer, as you would in 2009, as you would in 2012, as you would in 2007. Right. Because what, what, what hasn't changed, what's happened is the past has changed. The realization of the market has changed. Okay. But what you expect to happen has not. Interesting. So what you expect to happen is independent of what happened last month. It's very hard for people to understand this. They expect the market to keep going up because the market went up. They expect the market to keep going down because the market went down. But at any point in time, the chance of the market going up statistically is about 70% and the chance of it going down is about 30%. Okay. And that's regardless of what's happened historically. And it's also not highly tied to what the P multiple is, what GDP numbers are and all these other things, because it's not based upon what happens in the future. It's based upon what people expect to happen in right. the future, right. what they've priced in and how the realization compares to the expectations. So when the expectations become greater, it's easier for the market to go down, but these are these are things where the expectations have to become very, very, uh, you know, sort of de-linked uh, de to reality uh, for the expectations to really have an effect. For the most result, in for the best result and the most likely scenario is you bet on what is called the base rate of the market. Okay. The base rate of the market is over the next 12 months, 70% chance it goes up, 30% chance it goes down. Mm -hmm. If it goes down, uh, it, you know, what happens next? 70% chance it goes up, 30% chance it goes down. So if I have a game with you uh, so, and then we, we bet money, I say, we're going to roll the dice and there's a 70% chance you, you're going to win, 30% chance you're going to lose, you have to spend money, and you lose two times in a row, you don't stop playing the game. Right. Because the expected return of the game is positive and the expected return is independent of what happened the last roll. Right. And so that is the key to investing in the market is that you it's a very simple concept, but it's almost impossible for people to understand it because they expect the market to be reacting to the news and they expect to be able to predict what is going to happen with the market. Their knowledge of things, their emotional uh, input to it. Um, a lot of these things have a, have uh, this can be measured in, in their in their actions with dealing with the market. Right. And they, they expect. And so what the answer is that you cannot time the market mm -hmm. and you have to invest as if you cannot time the market because you can't time the market. So if you can't time the market, you don't want to change your equity and debt mix based on where you think the market is, is, is heading. What you want to do is try and make sure that you keep an equity and debt mix that is consistent with the risk level and that you can stay invested over long periods of time. And in investing in equities, you want to try and buy equities that have characteristics that tend to outperform the market and avoid buying stocks that tend to have characteristics that tend to underperform the market. Okay. So for instance, you want to try and uh, have companies that have low valuation multiples and avoid companies that have high valuation multiples. That's not to say low valuation companies will always outperform high valuation companies, but over a long period of time, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, you're, you're, if you buy stocks at lower prices relative to earnings, you will do better over longer periods of time. Now, over periods of time, things change. Everyone starts buying stocks 
with low PE multiples. So the ones that are left with low PE multiples might be really bad companies. They might be value traps. Right. And you have to adjust a little bit for that. But generally, over long periods of time, buying value tends to help over time. Buying stocks that are receiving upward earnings estimate revisions tends to help over time. Buying stocks with lower short interest relative to shares outstanding tends to help over time. So what we're trying to do is on the equity side, give a bias towards these types of companies. And in terms of asset allocation, make the asset allocation so that the client can bear whatever is coming on and realize that movements in the market are independent over time. And the fact the market went up tells you nothing about what's going to go on going forward. That being said, and with that as a giant caveat, we'll, we'll, uh, December is usually a, an up month for the market, okay. statistically. And uh, small caps have something called a January effect, where they tend to outperform in December and January. So I will leave, we're coming down to the wire. I believe that small cap stocks that have had negative price momentum will outperform over the next uh, month, uh, month and a half. And the reason is that the, the, the stocks were sold off. They had small cap stock, it's owned by individuals, they're taxable people. They sold the stock off uh, to realize their taxable losses. And the stocks have probably been sold off a little bit too much. And these are very small cap stocks with very negative momentum. Those should outperform over the next month and a half. That being said, as the caveat, you don't want to necessarily react to that. You want to just try and stay invested over long periods of time. We're going to have to leave it there. Mitch Zacks, thank you so much. You've been listening to The Steady Investor. Please join us next week. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in this week. Be sure to join Mitch Zacks and Mark Vickery for another edition of The Steady Investor next Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you haven't started your retirement plan yet, what are you waiting for? 